This is The Secret Life of Writers, a new interview series from inside the literary world. My name is Gemma Birrell, and I'll be speaking with some of the world's most interesting and visionary writers and creative icons about what they're working on now and how they balance life and art. When I think about writing a book in the early stages, you know, you write a lot of this sort of drafted material. I write in a very haphazard way. I tend to sort of emote first and then sort of think of the plot and piece it together later. And I always think of it as like you're putting two fingers on the page and you're trying to find the pulse. And then you write something and you find it. You find that little jump under your fingertips. You're like, this is, this is the heartbeat of the book. This is where I follow it. Today I'm speaking with Australian novelist Hannah Kent. Hannah's first novel, Burial Rites, about the last woman executed in Iceland, was a bestseller internationally and translated into 30 languages. It won a mountain of awards, including the Arbia Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Victorian Premier's People's Choice Award, and is being adapted for film. Her second novel, The Good People, set in Ireland in 1825, is also being adapted for film and was also critically acclaimed. Paula Hawkins called it a literary novel with the pace and tension of a thriller, which I think applies to all of Hannah's work. All of Hannah's novels are very different, but they're also tied together by bringing the past alive and writing about enigmatic people who are often outsiders and writing about the heart of life, about love, death and suffering. Hannah's new novel, Devotion, is just out, and readers everywhere will be delighted to hear it's a glorious love story, as Sarah Winman described. It's both lyrical and compelling, and Hannah pulls you in from the first page. She is a truly gifted storyteller. Hannah, hello. It's so wonderful to have the chance to speak with you today. Hello, Gemma. Thank you so much for having me. It's a It's a joy. Can you tell me where you're speaking from and what your neighbourhood is like to set the scene for us all? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I'm speaking to you from my study at home in the Adelaide Hills on Paramount Country um, and I'm looking out my window. It's, a, it's actually quite a really rainy spring day but I have a um, very wild untended garden and I can see fairy wrens just everywhere now that the rain stopped. So, yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful place of the world actually. Have you got people living close by? I do. In the hills? Yeah, in fact, I'm not sure if you can hear it, but I think some trees came down overnight so I can actually hear my neighbours um, chainsawing. So, so hopefully we're not interrupted too much by a sort of, you know, a bunch of arborists <laughs> in the district. But, um, but yeah, I can, I sort of see, in amongst the trees, I can see the glimpses of my, of my neighbours' houses. But uh, yeah, it's lovely still. And have you been relatively protected in the pandemic? And has life been pretty normal or has it really changed dramatically for you there? I had a, I've sort of had a strange, I mean, first of all, I should say that we have been really lucky. I live in South Australia, which I think is probably one of the states which has, you know, we've had some lockdowns, but they haven't, they've been nowhere near as long as the ones experienced by people in Victoria and New South Wales. But I had a baby just as we went into lockdown back in 2020. So on one hand, I was already in this kind of very domestic bubble. And on the other hand, I was kind of affected by it by just not really being able to see family or have people in hospital or, you know, see my extended family interstate. So on some ways, you know, I, you know, everyone's sort of been touched by the pandemic in a, in a certain way. But I think, you know, living in such a beautiful place as, as the Adelaide Hills, I think that, you know, I've gotten away with quite a lot, really. Now, you were just mentioning that you grew up in South Australia. Do you think the place and the landscape affected your writing? 
Undoubtedly. In fact, I think probably the reason why I love writing is really because I love reading. And I think my relationship to reading and my relationship to the landscape of where I grew up is sort of so so connected I can't really untangle them too and I think writing is probably maybe one step off that um I grew up actually basically where I'm living now even though I've lived in Melbourne for many years and other places too but I lived on seven acres of glorious country land you know farmland there were paddocks we had sheep and chickens and all this sort of stuff and we had these you know a pine forest at my parents place and an oak tree and we didn't have a great deal of money growing up but we had this landscape and we spent a lot of time in it and I I used to always read outside that was one of my favorite things to do as a kid was to grab a book and go sit underneath the oak tree and read and because I was interested in you know fairies and elves and fantastical worlds and I'd look up <laughs> and I'd, I'd be in this in the setting that was being described in the book um, and that was something that made reading particularly magical and then I think when I was old enough to realize that these books these things that I loved so much were created by people I was like I, I want to be one of those people I want to I want to create this magic. It must have been such a contrast when you went to Iceland on the Rotary Exchange. <laughs> um, can you tell me about about how stark that contrast was seeing the Icelandic land, which became the inspiration for your first novel, Burial Rites, of course? Yeah, it was completely different. I mean, one of the reasons why I think I nominated Iceland as a country to be considered for was because I was desperate at this, you know, I was 17 years old. I'd never seen snow before and I was desperate to see it. So I put a, you know, a bunch of very northern countries down on my application form for the exchange program. Had sort of, was sort of warned throughout the interview process that it was, you know, dark a lot in winter. But my enthusiasm <laughs> was unabated. And so I was the only poor sod sent off to Iceland. You know, my entire experience of arriving was just boggled my mind. I arrived in the middle of the night in Keflavik. Um, they actually forgot that I was there. So I was sort of stranded in this airport that was closing down and then put onto this bus still in the dark and then woke up in the dark. And by the time I actually made it to this small northern town where I ended up living for that year, it was always dark. So I had no idea what the place looked like. And I have such a strong memory of waking up, I think the morning after I finally arrived at about 11 o'clock the light started to come in, which is this intense sort of blue twilight, and looking out the window and seeing mountains and the sea there. I had no idea that there would be mountains there. And immediately I fell in love with that place and was sort of held hostage by its beauty for the entirety of that year in a way that was so keen that to this to this day I'm still haunted by the landscape of Iceland. I mean, it was, it's exquisite. It holds a very special place in my heart. It's interesting the darkness and the light that you describe, the light of the the kind of the snow and blue colour that you were just saying, yeah. but also that darkness. And I, I kind of I wonder what the effect on the people is if if people get really depressed <laughs> with all that darkness or Yeah, they do. Yeah, totally. Because I was one of the only exchange students coming from the Southern Hemisphere, I had two winters and normally they design it for people to have mainly two summers there, which are also incredible because you have 24-hour daylight. And, you know, we used to drive out to the peninsula, walk out to the very tip of the fjord and watch the sun come down, skim the top of the ocean and then head back up again in the middle of the night. Um, But um, Sounds magnificent. It is magnificent, but you have to, yeah, you have to really kind of guard yourself against the darkness or have some sort of ways of getting through it because it's, it does, it, it 
affects you psychologically in a way that I've never experienced before. And yeah, depression is real. There's, you know, January is a pretty grim month. They have all sorts of names for it. But I think also in a small community like that, there are activities that people sort of consciously apply themselves to, you know, little clubs and hobbies, all the music, reading, reading is so big in Iceland, all these little ways to get you through the, the months. And then the first sign of sun, everyone's out outside with their tops off in a shot, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and overall, did you find there was a real difference between Icelandic people and Australians? I find, I, I feel like that's a really difficult question to answer because, you know, it's I, I'm sort of loath to summarise any kind of people belonging to any singular country because, of course, people are so different everywhere, no matter where you find them. But I really, one thing that I did find different was, you know, growing up, like I said, I'd always loved reading and I'd loved writing. I'd been doing it for a long time. And I always felt a little apologetic about that, I think, in Australia, because it wasn't necessarily, it was, you know, there are absolutely, I think many Australians love to read. You know, we really appreciate the stories that are being told about Australia. But as a young person, I hadn't yet come across the reverence that Icelanders show towards writers and books. And I think that's something that has really become entwined with a national identity if such a thing exists since the sagas you know they're immensely proud of the sagas as they ought to be and you still have you know despite the very small population many programs dedicated to culture and to writing they have the very famous christmas book flood ahead of christmas where everyone goes out and buys presents because they're such popular gifts so I think that was actually quite a crucial thing for me to encounter at that age of 17 after finishing high school, not sure what I wanted to do, wanting to write, not knowing whether I should pursue it, you know, at university. So yeah, that was certainly something that really, really affected me in a profound way. And it's interesting because it's a whole, you know, different countries, you kind of assume that there'd be a similarity the first time you travel and the first time you live somewhere else. But actually, the small details and the big details can be utterly different. The expectations socially, the cultural assumptions you make, the politesse of how how you kind of react or interact in one situation or another. Did you find that kind of accumulation of details when you're actually living in that other country was really quite striking in in contrast, I guess? I think so. I think, you know, like you say, some things are huge, uh, such as, you know, sort of a nationwide love of reading. And then some things are small, like, you know, realising that it's incredibly rude to blow your nose and that you've (laughs) got to take your shoes off when you go in someone else's house. And, you know, you you always have that, you know, rather embarrassing series of um, social faux pas. Um, yeah, absolutely. You're adapting. But yeah, I think one thing that I, I had heard about Icelanders, which I actually found to be untrue in the sense that it had been told to me, was that they were cold. And I think oh. what I found instead was that they appear to be closed because, you know, these are small communities, then you don't necessarily lay your heart and you put your heart in your sleeve when you first meet someone. But I don't think now having lived there that it's coldness. I think it's more just a, a reserve. And maybe that comes from, you know, growing up in a place where you have smaller communities and a strong sense of identity. And as to where you live. Sometimes that the reserve can be initially, but for example, Australians, I find I'm generalizing, of course, <laughs> about an entire nation, but Australians can often, often be extremely friendly and nice up front, but that can be superficial as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it probably worked both ways. I had a friend who has told me since that I really disappointed her when I rocked up as the exchange student in this town because I wasn't like this blonde surfer kid. I was like 
you know, <laughs> a very shy, very pale person. And um, <laughs> I think she was a bit disappointed. I think she'd expected for me to sort of, yeah, rock up lugging my surfboard around the snow. But instead, instead you had the inspiration, you know, to write the book. How was Burial Rights received in Iceland when it was published there? Oh, I was so anxious about it, as you can imagine, because the story is well known in that country and it has also had its own cultural treatment. You know, there are songs written about these events. I was really fortunate to be able to actually be there for the launch of burial rites in Icelandic. So the fact that they even translated it was you know, something that I was so grateful for and relieved about because I think it showed that there was enough interest in this book and in my particular portrayal. But the launch of the of the translation, Naldustan, was wonderful. And I had many, many people come up to me and write to me since telling me, you know, everything along the lines of lots of people related to the characters. But I still think that what you have done is, you know, probably a version of the truth that could have happened to this is what I thought happened all along to thank you for doing the research and for your interest in in Iceland land in this way so I was grateful I put the years in researching that book because I think it could have possibly been received in a very different way had I sort of winged it. And was it after Burial Rights was published that you felt like that you could write full-time and be a professional writer or when did that happen? Yeah, it happened after Burial Rights was published. Burial Rights was actually, when I was writing it, it was going to be my thesis, a component of my thesis for a PhD I was doing in creative writing. So I wrote it thinking this is going to be read by, you know, two examiners and <laughs> probably my mum. And then, <laughs> and then when it was published, I was then in a position I was able to tour with it for quite a long time which meant that I had to defer my PhD and then I had signed a two-book contract and so I continued deferring my studies to to write the good people and then from then on I have you know really been in quite a fortunate position to make writing a big part of my of my day-to-day life you know interspersed with other kinds of work but but yeah writing predominates certainly. And and your next book, The Good People, um, was set in Ireland, which mm. it was also incredibly compelling and the landscape is so vividly described. I can still kind of picture that the river and the damp and the woods there. So tell me what fascinated you about that part of the world now? I'd, all, I'd never been to Ireland um, before I wrote The Good People. Irish culture felt very familiar to me because as I was growing up, I was in an Irish band and I played Irish folk instruments. Oh, were you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, so, I didn't you know, know I that. played the barren and, and the tin whistle and things like that. And we'd go around to folk festivals and perform. <laughs> I'm telling you like my nerdiest parts of myself, Gemma. Um, I got teased <laughs> so badly for doing it in high school. But then, you know, I love it. I'm proud mm. of it now. But yeah, so it still felt like a familiar place to me because I'd absorbed a lot the stories and the music culture and all this sort of stuff. And were you playing to Irish people a lot of the time, people of Irish heritage? Yeah, absolutely, Mm. yeah. But it was actually when I was researching burial rites that I came across this story um, set in Ireland. And I think because of my, you know, love of the music and uh, my interest in this particular article, which was this sort of very strange account of someone defending themselves against a very serious crime by saying that they were a fairy doctor and they'd been trying to treat a changeling child, I immediately thought, oh, this this ticks so many of my <laughs> interests. Fast forward a few years after Burial Rights had come out and I'd done research in Australia, I went and spent quite a bit of time in Ireland and just loved it and just absolutely adored it. I spent a lot of time, particularly down in Kalani, where the events of the, the novel are based on a set. And I had a great time, particularly there's a river, which is very important in the novel. And I found this amazing bread and breakfast, this very old working farm whose family had been there for generations. And I stayed there for a long time. And 
and this farmer who was probably quite perplexed at me but very lovely just allowed me just to go tramping along his paddocks and you know poking around the river and yeah. I'm sure he had no idea what I was doing but uh, <laughs> but yeah it's just spent a lot of time in the landscape just walking it you know it was incredible it was it was still quite cold there was snow some days a lot of drizzle but intense beauty and still I was really overcome with the way in which the history still seems so evident in the landscape you know these dry stone walls these old killings lots of abandoned crofts yeah it's, it's, it was beautiful and amazing it's one of the most spectacular places I've ever been to and so we're talking about you writing these two different novels but at the same time, you're also the editor and, and founder of Kill Your Darling. So how are you kind of integrating your writing with that role? What does your role involve exactly? So I've actually, as sort of for a year now, stopped working at Kill Your Darlings. I um, I was publishing director there and before that I was deputy editor and obviously did a lot of mm. sort of uh work in setting up the thing with Rebecca Stafford way back when, about 10 years ago now. But it, it was a, it was actually a lovely balance with writing because it allowed me to uh, speak with a lot of other writers, edit their work and be part of that kind of community. But then I started really feeling the pinch on my hours when I started yeah. having children. I was feeling like I couldn't actually commit enough time to my own writing as well as doing my responsibilities and duties with KYD. Yeah, so I, I, st- I took a step back. There was an amazing new generation of people coming through the magazine then too. So it felt like the time was right to to step away from it. But I still so value the experience of of setting up that literary journal and my years working there. It taught me so much about my own writing as well as allowing me to discover and take part in something that was really very special. So you were editing different work as part of that? Like you were kind of hands-on editing? Yep, absolutely. And then as the sort of the years went on towards the end, I sort of stepped back a little bit from the from the editing and I was doing having more of a management or I guess a financial role and then yeah but I loved it I certainly was editing throughout both burial rights and the writing of the good people but devotion is probably the first book where I haven't been doing any of that so moving on to devotion uh, enormous congratulations I loved every bit of it and raced through it because it was so absorbing and you wrote it so beautifully and also the writing is just stunning thank you so how does it feel to have it finally out in the world and how long have you been working on it? Tell me a bit oh, more about it. Well, it's been five years since The Good People came out. In that time, I always knew by the time that that book came out, I sort of, I like to finish a book having a strong sense of what my next work will be or at least where my interests lie. And I finished The Good People thinking, okay, I'm really interested in maybe turning my hand to something set in South Australia because it terrifies me being so close to home. I'm not sure if I can do it justice. But also I was interested in pursuing this idea of sort of female friendship. And then I had two kids and I was writing screenplays as well. I wrote a, a original feature film screenplay that was based on some of the ideas that I'd originally intended to explore in my third novel. And I also was working on the adaptation of The Good People. And then at sort of time, I was aware of time rolling on. And by the time my son was born, I was like, no, I've really got to kick this into gear. I've really got to focus on the novel. And uh, so that's when I really started working on it in earnest. But it was sort of around 2017 that I decided that it was going to be a love story. Prior to that, I'd been considering a work that maybe I wanted to do something lighter. You know, both burial rats and good people take quite bleak historical events. And I, I didn't necessarily want to move to a lighter genre or lighter events, but I wanted to have a a happier outcome so I wanted to write about friendship initially between women I was really interested in the way in which friendship 
can sustain women longer than other relationships that might be deemed more important. And then 2017 came along. My wife proposed to me on the day that Australia voted in favour of same-sex marriage. Oh, how wonderful. Yeah, it was, you know, that was a very special day. And also I was reading this incredible book by Michelle Dichnowski, another Australian writer, an autobiography called The Ghost Wife, which was exactly about that, about sort of the, the marriage debate that was happening at the time. And I started thinking about the things that interest me as a writer, how I'm interested in absence and silence. And, you know, that to me is what is interesting about history. It's not really what's there. It's what hasn't been written down. Um, you know, I have so many questions about it. And I think that's probably why I tend to write about women particularly, because they're, they seem to be often on the margins, particularly if they're of a sort of a low, lower social class or illiterate. There's so much about them that we don't know. So I'd been thinking about this friendship and then these events occurred and I'd read this beautiful book, which was about how so much is has been left unsaid. There are so many gaps in the history. Um, there are so mm. many friendships that might have been more. And I thought to myself, oh, maybe I need to sort of queer this friendship, maybe make it a romantic <laughs> friendship. And then by the time that my son was born, I'd sort of just thrown my hands up and I was like, no, I've just make it an absolutely queer love story. <laughs> Don't yeah. be completely direct about it. And I think that was a combination of me having grown up a bit and being less afraid to write about something like that, but also mm. being incredibly sleep deprived and just not caring <laughs> very much, just being like, oh, just write what you want to write. You just got to write this book. Just write a story that you that you want to read. So, yeah. so you were sleep deprived when you were writing it. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so tell me, how did you do it? You had two kids yeah. at the time. Were yeah. you still you still do, <laughs> still of course, <laughs> um, and both really quite young. So, how how did you wrangle it? And I will kind of also qualify that question because I feel like people often say you wouldn't ask a man that, but I would. Like, I'm yeah. <laughs> endlessly intrigued by how people kind of juggle their their lives, just their, their actual kind of their home life and their work life, and especially today with things. Yeah, it was, you know, and I, and I feel like I should be very open about the fact that if I'd been a full-time carer to my children, if I'd been the primary guardian, there's no way that I'd have a book out. I know Emily St. Don Mandel sort of said something similar when she wanted to be very upfront about the fact that she had a nanny, because I think yeah. to say otherwise or pretend otherwise is doing a lot of writers who are full-time carers uh, a mm. massive disservice, um, because it is so hard and you do need time to write. And I was very fortunate that my originally I was going to, you know, be the primary care of, of our kids, but then Heidi, my partner, stepped up and she was like, nope, I'll do it, you write. And, I mean, what an extraordinary gift. So, I mean, yeah. um, I did have time. But also, you know, you're still up with the kids at night. You're, I was breastfeeding. Yeah. I breastfed both of my children. So you're doing, yeah. you know, <laughs> you've got a kid on the boob and you're typing with the other hand. It's just a mess. <laughs> um, but, I, uh, but, yeah, both of my kids were terrible pretty they're still pretty bad sleepers to be honest I'm yeah. I was up last night too so I um yeah, oh no. <laughs> so you know I think the main we thing let go of it Hannah we decided oh. to just let June come and sleep in our bed like you know she'll start off in hers but then we thought look we're fighting it why fight it like it's actually quite lovely when she comes in for a snuggle in the middle of the night so so be it I think that sounds lovely and I wish that my kids wanted to sleep in our bed but if we take them into our bed they just want to play bears you know oh, you lift no. the covers up and make a cave so they just won't <laughs> sleep so you know it's just a lot of uh, it's pretty yeah. grim but yeah. um but yeah so I mean on one hand 
absolutely it, it would have been a lot harder had I not had the time and the hours given to me or freed up by someone else looking after my children but yeah it was a big thing that Heidi did also putting her own career on hold so that I could do that but it was also obviously challenging you know I used to I think particularly because I used to be such a disciplined writer and I used to take this kind of pride which I now realize was just complete privilege and nothing to really be proud about you know I used to be able to wake up fresh in the morning and go straight to the computer and stick to the very specific hours and then I was suddenly thrust into this world where it was just grabbing an hour where you could and yeah. towards the end writing a lot at night writing first thing in the morning and yeah. and struggling with really an absence of momentum which previously I'd relied on to sort of get the get the work done so it took a lot more time but mm. I think also in some ways it was good I can be an anxious writer I used to say you know I don't care what people think of my work but I mean of course you do because of course you want it to be read because the reader completes the work but I do think that being so tired and being reduced to just needing to take it 15 minutes at a time allowed me to sort of push out anything that wasn't serving me in that moment out of my mind so I mean I was able to write this book and I think probably do something a little bit different to what I'd done previously without worrying too much about what people would think about it it was just about getting it done in a way that I liked and that hopefully Heidi would like as well. And was that the most free that you felt in terms of the writing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And I, you know, it wasn't that I wasn't researching this book because I do think it's important to research, especially when you are writing about suffering. I would feel very uncomfortable, for instance, inventing suffering. And because I think that raises interesting or problematic questions about fetishizing suffering from people in the past or sort of even celebrating it or converting it into sort of into entertainment, exploiting. So there are parts of the book which are based very strongly on research, particularly there's a ship journey in the book. And I really made sure that everything that happened on that journey had happened in real life. But it was absolutely freeing to fictionalise so much of it and to essentially have a fictionalised plot. The, the setting is, is based on real things, but the characters aren't based on true people. That was really fun. I feel like so much of this book in the way that it sort of just unshackled itself from the historic record allowed me to mm. return to that place of play in writing, which I think is so important if you're doing it a lot or if it becomes your career because that's where the joy is, you know. that's For me, that's where the delight is, just being able to play and try new things and be challenged. And I think before I'd written this book, I was concerned about, you know, losing the fun of writing because of perhaps being too conscious of having an audience essentially that you wanted to please so yeah there was absolutely something freeing and in, in not caring about that you know obviously you know knowing that they're there but kind of freeing myself from the concern of pleasing everyone and writing mm. just to please myself and part of that was yeah returning to that place of play trying something new creatively just going a little bit bonkers with it all yeah it was really fun I really enjoyed it I want to ask more about the research, even though a lot of it is imagination, as you've said, but just just first of all, kind of gradually looking through the process of finishing the book and, and what happens and letting go. How does that happen for you? Who was the first reader of the manuscript as soon as you've got it to a point where you, where you feel like it's ready to be read? Or does someone read it earlier? How, how do you work in terms of that process? I think with my first two books, I was very private about it. I would never show anyone until I'd gotten to the stage where I knew that there were problems still with it, but I didn't know how to fix them. So I wanted to have conversations, sometimes just to have an echo chamber so I could hear myself talking about the problems and find the solutions for myself. But I wouldn't really show anyone what I'd written 
you know, also because it was really bad, Gemma. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I don't I'm, believe I'm, you. I, no, it's true. <laughs> I, I've said before, and I still hold to this, that I'm not a very good writer, but I can be quite a good rewriter. So my first drafts are messy and sometimes incoherent. They're completely overwritten because I'm just trying to work out my thinking on the page and I'm just trying to circle around an idea before I hit on it. And so, yeah, in the past, I was really anxious not to show anyone, you know, these very embarrassing early attempts until I was just at a loss as what to do next, really. But with this book, I mean, I'd come from writing for screen and, you know, one of the most shocking things about that experience and the, and a lovely thing too, but yeah, shocking for me at that point right. was that you have to show people every single draft, you know, <laughs> you got producers looking at your first draft, which is so far off what it's going to be. And that was really embarrassing, but from, you know, learning from their reactions and seeing that they very much saw it as a process and, you know, obviously had the ability and talent to see what you were, you know, grasping towards, I felt a little bit like, okay, yeah, I can show I can show people this at an earlier stage. So Heidi was the reader from word go. You know, I'd read her poor thing. You know, she's in the middle of doing laundry and I'd just come up behind her and start reading stuff to her. And I'm like, what do you think? And she was like, yeah, I think it's good. Keep going. And I think also because this book was written in such more of a fragmented way um, Mm. that I needed to because I I needed reassurance sometimes. And also I think the other reason that I wanted Heidi to be so included from the outset is because there's no way I would have written this book without having met her, without us being married. So in some ways it was a book that I was writing for her. To this day it's a really special thing to be able to remember back when I was reading her really early parts of the book or Mm -hmm. when we'd go for these, you know, one of our kids just would not sleep in a cot. So sometimes when we were sick of driving around we'd like chuck her in a pram and go for these big long walks and we'd just talk about the book on the walk and so much of it was written in those very sleep-deprived kind of pacing around our neighbourhoods. So, yeah, it felt right that she be included right from the outset. And then, yeah, so this book has actually had quite a lot of early readers or should I say observers because people weren't necessarily giving me questions or, or feedback from an early stage, but people knew what I was doing. And I think, yeah, I needed I needed that support because I was aware that I was doing something different and it was necessary for me as much as I felt freed by doing that something different to occasionally, you know, have a have a a run of the doubts and to be able to have people say, no, 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 keep going. Yeah, I think this is going to work. You should do it. And then what was the actual editorial process like with this book? Was it similar to the other books or was it quite different? I know you said that you did, like, burial rights was also your um, part of a university, a thesis, was yeah. it? Um, so how was this process compared to the other books? It was quite quick. I think um, with burial rights, you know, I had the luxury of time. There was a lot of time before I even attempted a second or third draft of that book. So I had the benefit of sort of chucking it in a drawer and letting it stew and then coming back to it a little bit more fresh. I I didn't really have that with this book. It was sort of finish a draft, get straight into the next one. And part of that was timeliness, but I think it was also because I knew it could be ready soon. I just needed to put the hours in and make the changes. So this book probably, in the past, I've probably written 14 drafts of the one book of both Burial Rats and the Good People. This one had far fewer, but each draft is much, much different from the one previous to it. It was, uh, it felt quite, (laughs) it was an intense process, Gemma, but um, one that was really uh, made quite enjoyable from working with fantastic editors and publishers who know how to have those conversations where essentially, yeah, you end up solving all they're not telling you how to fix it. They're not even really telling you the problems. They're just asking questions of you. Um, mm. And so you can achieve that real clarity of intention much faster with than without. Now, just in terms of the actual the background of the book and where it's set, just again moving back to kind of the concrete details of, of devotion, 
Can you give a little bit more detail about the Lutherians and the Prussians who set, settled in South Australia because this story is following a group of them? Yeah, like I said earlier, I was interested in a long time in writing about something in South Australia, but particularly the wine regions for which we're quite famous. The Barossa is obviously an area that's well known around the world for its incredible wine. I don't know whether at the time I just really wanted to drink or um, <laughs> it just really appealed to me. I thought, oh, I can go on research trips to these wine areas. Um, but mm. I, I was interested in it because particularly there's such a, um, a food culture in these places. And I knew that so much of that food culture came from women and, and you know, I was interested in writing about their friendship and I was sort of just juggling these ideas around in my mind. And then I, I thought, well, I'm also really interested in the Prussians that came out to South Australia uh, in the in sort of the in the um, 1800s from sort of 1840s right through to sort of, well, the, the 20th century. And uh, But the, the first lot I knew had come out because they'd been persecuted for being old Lutherans, for not sort of submitting to the new doctrines that were being imposed in the, in the Union Church then in Prussia at that time. And I'm not necessarily related to the people who came out on the sort of the first loads of those persecuted Lutherans, but I'm like 10 years later, I'm descended from people who did that. And so, and I'd also been really interested in the way in which in South Australia, I think so much of German culture has been absorbed, but it's totally alien in other states. And lots of people don't really know about this sort of German cultural heritage that has come from, you know, early German Mm. God, for want for a better word, settlers, invaders. And so I was interested in looking at these aspects, in looking at these particular landscapes and settings, and yeah, um, yeah. and that led me to then research about the reasons why people came over and some of the boat journeys that happened. I mean, incredible journeys, really. Oh, harrowing. Uh, absolutely. absolutely harrowing. And I yeah. came across this one captain's log book, um, which was Captain Hahn of the Zebra, and he had been very reluctant to take these emigrants from Hamburg to Adelaide. He'd done it once before and taken people to New York and found it just an absolutely harrowing experience. And so he's very he he writes obviously a lot about you know the journey and the captainy things he has to do, but he also writes about these people that he's taking. And at first he's really struck by just how pious they are and how much they sing and how often they pray. <laughs> and you sort of read through it and you're like, oh great, they're as pious as you know the local narrative where I live has it. You know they're always upheld as I hate the word pioneer. I think it's so problematic in so many ways, but, you know, they're upheld in this sort of, I have always thought in this kind of slightly hagiographic fashion where they're sort of perceived to be saint-like and, you know, there's that Protestant work ethic and yada, yada, yada. And the captain's logbook was sort of supporting it. And I was like, radio. And then I reached the end of it and he's like, I might have not included some details that I ought to have. And the reason, he then goes to describe basically a long list of conflicts and arguments um. and <laughs> all the ju- stuff, you know, some yeah. juicy stuff novelists love. And the reason <laughs> he did so is because he thought he might have to um, say a piece in court about them if they ever went to court and people laid charges. So suddenly you've got this incredible information about this doctor who, you know, we don't know whether it was intentional or whether he was just completely incompetent, but he's <laughs> given a bunch of very unwell people um, glass in their medicine mm. um, into children. People passed away, um, perhaps because of the glass, perhaps just because, I don't know, he was even giving them the wrong medicine. At one stage he locked himself in his cabin and refused to treat the emigrants. You've got mm. quarrels amongst the emigrants themselves, you know, all this arguing about food and people realising that they have to eat salted herrings when they're going through, you know, passing the equator and it makes them so thirsty. Anyway, mm. this amazing amount of detail and it was just really too good not to use and I live very close 
to Handorf. And in the book, the village of Handorf is not Handorf. <laughs> it's, it's completely fictionalised, but I was able to sort of lean really hard against that story and mm. use it in the book. At the same time, perhaps in the foreground, exploring those interests of, of having uh, a romantic friendship or having just an outright queer love story between two women who come across, who, who set out for South Australia. And in terms of the love story and the friendship between the women, did you find much at all in the kind of research that you were doing, the stories of women? Did you find those stories of women? Or was it that kind of more of the imagined part because these are often silenced yeah, it was histories or stories? It was the latter. It was because I'd even just been looking for accounts of friendship originally. I just wanted you know, these narratives of because um, you do find them in other instances and sometimes they're mentioned. People write letters to one another, so forth, or even just anecdotally through speaking with local historians or reading local histories. And I didn't find anything. And I knew because you, you still, just living in this place, you get a sense of just how important friendship would have been to women who, many of whom, the most they sort of get is they're described as very homesick. Lots of people I read as from that time who'd written accounts, travellers passing through, et cetera, mentioned that the men were often really happy to be, you know, in this in this colony, but the women were incredibly homesick and many of them were isolated. But I was, so I was interested in looking at, at that, but I couldn't even find anything written from the perspective of women. The most I got were a few occasional references told to me in person by people who remembered, you know, great-great-grandmother Kedwig or something. And that was really the moment where I thought, I'm, I'm not certainly not going to find anything to do with in terms of a, of a queer story here. I'm, I'm certain, you know, I'm just not going to find anything. It was dead. You know, the most I've even got about romantic relationships between men and women are very sort of circumspect, dry descriptions of weddings and a few scandals, yeah. like when a woman wore a white wedding dress instead of a black one or one woman who had a baby out of wedlock. And so I'm like, right, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not getting anything to work with here in the record, so I'm, I'm going to make it up. And I want to, but I knew at that same time that I didn't want to create this narrative of shame. I realised that I was writing about essentially a very pious religious community and to talk about any sort of queer or same-sex attraction or to have the characters. First of all, I didn't even know if the characters would be aware of their own feelings. Yeah. Um, but also I thought if they are, it's going to be really difficult to write about this without it becoming about retribution and punishment and yeah. all these sorts of very grim things that we have in literature and have been a necessary part of talking about homosexuality in the past but it's not what I wanted to write it wasn't a narrative that I felt would serve me or my community at this time so that was when I got to think okay how what can I do here for the characters to be absolutely aware of their feelings and to uh, to ensure that shame doesn't become part of it and that was yeah. why the book takes its its particular sort of path well, I think there's a real joy in it. There's a joy in the description. There's a kind of sensual beauty in in all of it. And I think, I mean, that love story is so beautifully sustained throughout the book. It's just really, as you say, it's also really quite juicy. <laughs> <laughs> you want more? It's really, it's really beautifully done, Hannah. Um, so I'm I'm curious as well about just in terms of the silences and and you know the the things that we don't read about and what you didn't necessarily find in your research. I'm I'm curious about the spiritual elements. For example, there's one character in your book who is in possession of a particular book that mm. is seen as quite threatening to the other very, very religious um, characters. Was there much talk about 
a fear of the occult in that period. Did you trace any of that? I did actually. And that whole part of the book, that sort of part of the narrative is drawn absolutely from fact. So because I'm, I'm not Lutheran myself, I had to do quite a lot of research into these particular kinds of communities and the churches that were formed. And, you know, that was not exactly riveting, but necessary research. And it, but, but as part of that, I kept encountering mentions of witches in, in local mm. communities. And I was like, what is this? And so I started scratching a little bit more. And what I encountered was that some people in the congregation possessed it. Essentially, it's a grimoire. And this is true. They brought it over with them. And it was called the the sixth and seventh books of Moses. Um, you know, these left out books that were left out of the Bible. And in them were supposedly all these sort of cures, um, a lot of herbal cures, but also very symbolic sort of rituals for for healing that God had supposedly sort of dictated to Moses on Mount Sinai. And this was, you know, regarded as being a spiritual book. It was regarded as being a godly book by the people who possessed it. And yet this same book has chapters of, you know, how to summon the dead and, you know, a conversation with the devil and, oh. um, and do they ha- do they, do they actually have this book or a co- uh, in yeah. their possession? Like, can yeah. you go and have yeah? A look I think the State Library of South Australia has has a copy. Lots of them were destroyed when the pastors found out that the his, their congregations had them. And there are lots of these very funny anecdotes of the you know someone you know books being thrown into the fire and then jumping back out again or um, <laughs> someone you know dying who was supposed to have been in possession of this book and they buried the book with them but then the book turned up elsewhere or mm. burying someone who had this book and dropping the coffin three times to get rid of the bad luck all these like amazing uh-huh. stuff there was actually a lot of information mm. about it but yeah the, the the state library has a copy but I was also able to find a copy in German on the internet and I spent many nights like very labor I don't speak German but very laboriously translating it and it's a lot of like re- how did you do that Hannah you- I mean I know that you did it with <laughs> Icelandic for yeah. the first book um translating a lot of a lot of the research but how in the world did you do it with German if you don't speak German <laughs> very slowly I mean Icelandic I mean I have I have some proficiency in that language so that was made yeah. it a lot easier and a lot faster but there was a lot of sort of Google Translate and then researching certain words and by the <laughs> end of it I felt like I was starting to get a grasp on the you know a particular kind of vocabulary which involved yeah. a lot of sort of names of illnesses and mentions of blood and magic and things like that but um yeah it was it's an amazing book and it was just you know again just an incredible detail but I thought I thought also really interesting giving that this these communities were so religious you know not just in the sense of their faith but also in the sense that the church governs their lives you know mm. their days were marked by church bells they started work when the bell was rung they finished it when the bell was rung um you know it was a whole their whole social fabric was dictated by their religious practice and so to have in amongst these very pious people this incredible sort of compendium of spells and and some very dark magic in there as well was just like too too precious to ignore so yeah that's absolutely true anything to do with that grimoire the sixth and seventh books of Moses is true there's a big change in narration that really defeats our expectations when we're reading the book. And I don't want to specify what it is because I don't want to ruin it for anyone who's going to read this wonderful book. But can you talk euphemistically about whether you wanted that to happen from the start and you knew that was going to happen or you decided on that device in the process of writing it? I decided on the device quite early on in the process of writing it. I mean, I think one of the reasons why I was 
I had been reluctant for so many years to write about Australia, to set a book in Australia, is because I have, you know, our colonial history is so bloody. It's so dreadful. I just didn't know how I could write about it in a way that, because, you know, I'm never going to, for instance, write from the perspective of an Aboriginal character. That's not my place. That's, you know, why would I take up that space? That's not for me to do. I have no authority to do that. I believe that very firmly. So my options, therefore, were to write from the perspective of, you know, a, a white invader, a white colonialist. Like that held, that held very little attraction as well because, you know, in historical fiction, to some degree you have to adopt the views and the prejudices and the biases of the people from that time. And that was something I absolutely did not want to do. It felt like an abhorrent thing to do. That was one of the reasons why I was sort of dancing around this idea for such a long time because I didn't know what sort of story I could tell where I could kind of mitigate these concerns or tell a story in such a way that was telling something that I wanted to tell without seemingly celebrating the the atrocities of the past or casting them in a particular light that would continue to feed ignorance or misinformation. So that was one of the reasons why very early on I'd I'd only written maybe 10,000 words of this book. I stopped and I said, I need to do something different. Essentially what I need to do is to think of a device whereby I can write a modern novel. And I do think of this novel as as modern. And as soon as I decided on this device, I realised that my other concern about having to necessarily write about shame uh, or to write about homophobia or to write about all these other things, I would be able to sort of change that as well. So that was the reason why, because I kept getting stuck. I kept finding myself writing these scenes of that were just gross um, and didn't were completely unaligned with who I am as a person and my own beliefs. Um, because of the perspective or what was gross about them? I think just because of the historical context. You know, I felt I felt it, it was felt like a gross thing to be writing these stories of women repressing their sexuality and going on to marry men and leading these very miserable lives. I thought this, this you know, yeah, it probably happened, but I don't want to write about it in this way. Um, this is not going to uplift me. It's not going to uplift anyone else. And, you know, I set out to write a book that would be, uplifting at least to me that would celebrate the light that would celebrate love and it didn't feel like a celebration and I was also finding it very difficult to write about you know these early colonialists relationship with the paramount people and so yeah so I started thinking that there's a way that I can I can address these things but in a in essentially adopt a modern mindset to do that so <laughs> without really giving too much away, that's kind of why I hit on this, on, on a way to essentially make the character, to dislocate her from the, from the historical context that she lives in, to, to be able to give her essentially modern attitudes towards these things. And that then allowed me to uh, consider the relationship between the Paramount and the Germans in a new way and also to write about, you know, queer love in a way that I wanted to, to celebrate it and uplift it and to also show so much of its purity, so much of its um, essentially wholesomeness, you know, and that's that's what I wanted to do. So that was the reason why. And once I did that, the novel took off. I found the heart of it immediately. I sometimes, I often think of when I think about writing a book in the early stages, you know, you write a lot of this sort of drafted material. I write in a very haphazard way. I write, I tend to sort of emote first and then sort of think of the plot and piece it together later. Mm-hmm. And I always think of it as like you're putting two fingers on the page and you're trying to find the pulse and then you write something and you find it. You find that little jump under your fingertips. You're like, this is, this is the heartbeat of the book. This is where I follow mm-hmm. it. And that's when I decided on that device. That's where I found the heartbeat. 
Yeah, and it's it's utterly unexpected for the reader, which is something that's quite rare, I think, um, to have to have that kind of sudden. I mean, of course, there's there's stories that are unpredictable, but this is really quite unusual, and, and I I thought it was brilliant. I thought it worked really well. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Yeah, it's I think it's one of those things that some readers might might really like, and I think some people will hate it as well. But um, I hopefully so far people seem to like it more than find it confusing. So. <laughs> So hopefully that bodes well. And what was also incredibly uplifting and joyful in this book is the poetry of your writing, Hannah. Um, Can you tell me about your love of poetry? And is it true that you wanted to be a poet early on in your writing life? Yeah, absolutely. When I I ended up, when I left Iceland, I... um, I decided when I was in Iceland that I should give writing a go and I applied for the creative writing program at Flinders University. And in my application, I think it was just poems. I just applied through a series of poems. I wrote a lot of poetry when I was in Iceland. To me, poetry is always the most magic of, I guess, various types of literature because it's so concise and yet it's so precise. It can be these things and at the same time be hugely ambiguous. It's just also, I think, it has always brought me back to what I mentioned earlier, this place of, of of writing being essentially a form of play, of moving words around on the page. You know, one of the things I love to do, and it's still one of my favourite exercises, is to cut up <laughs> to cut up a bunch of words out of newspapers and just rearrange them, kind of like magnetic, you know, poetry on fridges, because there's so many possibilities, and you, so much of the writing of it is not knowing. I think so much of the the best poems that. I enjoy or, the, or that I've written have come out through the process of writing them. You sort of start not knowing what you're going to do and you can come up with something absolutely beautiful. And to me too, it's just about showing and an honouring language and words and trying to say old things in new ways, you know. I mean, that's it's just such a pleasure in, in even the attempt of trying to do that. And then when you sort of apply that to writing about things like landscape, or writing about uh, things that are totally unfamiliar, like the historic past, you know, times that I have never experienced, and trying to use words to sort of manufacture essentially a, a, a you know, a sensory moviescape in a reader's head. Yeah, I think it is magical. I think language is magical, and I think poetry is the most magic. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's probably why I kind of indulge myself in that way because I just personally enjoy it. And tell me about some of the poets or writers who write poetically who mean most to you. Uh, it's changed over the years. There's been writers that I've really loved uh, when I was younger that I tend not to read so much anymore. Um, a writer, who, a novelist actually, who I think writes in the most beautiful lyrical way is um, Sebastian Barry. He's a writer that no, I will just read everything he writes and I find him incredibly moving and inspiring. I, I always know the writers that rather than just admiring them, I find inspiring because I have to sort of put them down and run away and start writing something of my own. Um, <laughs> I also think Max Porter is another writer who I've just recently loved. You know, um, Lanny is an incredible book. Grief, with the thing, Grief is the Thing with Feathers. Um, John McGregor, I'm realising that these are all men. There's also many, many women who I, who I love to, to read uh, the poetry of. I've recently started reading some contemporary poetry and it sort of bites in a different way. Um, like I really, really love the new collection uh, by Evelyn Araluen. Um, I think that's sort of beautiful, incredibly thought-provoking, incredibly interesting uh, collection of work um, but so many I mean I could just sit here and battle off a bunch of names for, for hours and hours and hours but 
I uh, yeah, there's been lots, but yeah, it's I I think generally as a reader, I'm drawn to a more lyrical style of writing, and that's probably why I try to sort of do that in my own. It's just it's just personal taste, really. I have friends who absolutely hate <laughs> hate it, and you know, aim for sort of just real something really clean, clean prose. But the joys of yeah, there was a there was a certain kind of delight in coming back from screenwriting where everything is just so necessary. You know, it's like writing short stories. You can't have a spare word. Everything has to serve the narrative. And then being able to write devotion and just kind of linger with language a little bit. Can you tell me where you're at with those screenplays? And also, can you tell me if you're working on something else now? I know that's very very kind of early <laughs> to ask you that, but you did say that you often have the idea. I do, yeah. Um, I do. Quite early on. Mm. I, uh, you might not want to talk about it, of course, <laughs> or you could talk much. about it euphemistically. Yeah, yeah I, look, to be honest, I think a lot of it's COVID affected. The Good People adaptation, I'm not sure whether they're going to bring another writer on or whether I'll just keep on doing that. Probably a lot of just depending on other commitments and time, it's always such a time shuffle. The original feature film has been funded. There's you know, actors attached, a director attached, Dana Reid, um, who is a great Australian director who um, was nominated for an Emmy recently for directing some episodes of The Handmaid's Tale. It's all, it's basically all ready to go. And I think that it's just depending on, you know, border lockdowns and travel and all of these sorts of really difficult questions. So I'm not really sure what's happening with that at the moment because I know that the plans that were, you know, I think they're basically ready to start filming at the beginning of the year. And now this is when they would have been doing it. So I'm not sure what's going to happen there. But, but yeah, in terms of work that's coming next, I do have some books that I want to write. I actually really want to write about Iceland again. And there's a story which, came to me in a really interesting way. There's some people I met and the story they told me was so interesting, but it's certainly one that I'm going to have to go to Iceland to to research and I'm not sure when I'm going to be able to do that, both because of travel restrictions but also just having a very young family and spending time away from them. And, yeah, I don't know, there's, there's lots of projects. There's also some ideas that I have that I'm not sure whether I'm trying to toss up whether they'd be good for a novel or a screenplay, so I think I'm going to have to spend some time just mucking around with both formats and seeing which one serves the story better. But, yeah, actually I have a lot of ideas, but it's just going to be a matter of what's most um, practical really in these in these strange new times. Lastly, I had such a soft spot for the heroine, Hane, and the way that she hears nature sing, which is really, again, quite extraordinary and different in a character. And quite literally she hears the music of the river or snow and it's such a special idea. So can you tell me where that came from and end with a reading from the beginning of the book that speaks to that. I, I you know, I think Hannah's uh, synesthe- sort of synesthesia um, where she hears the natural word that she sees is something that um, was came about very early for that character and it maybe came about because of my own desire to write about the landscape and that can be difficult in fiction because often characters, I mean, why would a character remark at length about their natural world that they inhabit every day of their lives? So in one way it was a practical way to, for me to be able to write about landscape for a character who's essentially in the same place she's always lived. But also I think it was very crucial to this character's love, deep, deep love and respect for a relationship. And that also fed into the slight differences in faith that she holds. I mean, she sees the divine in the outside world, not necessarily just in a in a very remote God in church. And so it just became something that was so crucial to who she is as a person and the things that she loves and the things that she honours in her own life. So so that was the reason why. And also it was, again, just a real pleasure 
to to write to to imagine it and to write it and there's it's also probably worth mentioning that there's a lot of this is my most personal book yet in so many ways and there's a lot of me in Hana when I was a little girl and I mentioned earlier I used to read under the oak tree you know I used to talk to that oak tree I had relationships with the trees on my parents place and it was a nice way to return to that really special time where I would be completely alone and seek out that kind of solitude and yet at the same time you know feel absolutely in company and in harmony with the natural world so I'll read I'll read that a little bit um, which is from the beginning of the book which starts with Hannah doing exactly that listening uh, to the to the song of the world around her one night years ago in the autumn of 1836 I was lying under the walnut tree in my family's orchard listening to the tapping of raindrops sliding from leaves to soil. I heard them as a muted concord of bells. The trunk drummed black. The sky was chanting low cloud and I was bathed in hymns of water. Somewhere beneath it all, I could hear my father calling my name. I stayed where I was. The wind scattered droplets upon my face. The damp soaked through my clothes. Hana! I closed my eyes. For the past two evenings, and this night too, my mother had been at the Radke's house for a fetish lesson, and I was determined to make the most of my freedom. I had escaped outside as soon as she had left. I was 14, nearly 15, and not yet used to the burdens of womanhood and its inert domestic companions of needle and thread, bucket and cloth. A cottage with its low ceiling and cramped rooms suffocated me. I missed the livingness of things. Hannah? The walnut tree was singing to me, stay. Hannah, a different voice this time, louder. I opened my eyes and saw my brother, Matthias, looking down at me with a bemused expression, lantern in hand. The tree's song subsided. What does he want? I asked, shielding my eyes from the glare of the light. If you go inside now, he won't see you. He's looking for you in the lane. Matthias sent the lantern on the ground and helped me to my feet, and together we walked through the orchard, heady with the smell of rain on loam and fallen leaves, to the mud of the yard. I could make out the pale bulk of our pig in the dark of her sty. She lifted her head to look at us as I turned the doorknob. Are you coming in? I asked Matthias. No, I'm to bed, he said, nodding towards the side of the house where the ladder led to the loft. He hesitated. Were you listening again? It's better at night. What could you hear this time? he asked. He was eye bright in the glow of the lantern. Singing, I said, like the tree was singing to the water and the rain was singing to the earth. Hannah, thank you. I've so enjoyed speaking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. And to everyone listening, I recommend that you race out to your local independent bookshop and get a copy of this stunning new novel, Devotion. Thanks so much, Hannah. Thanks, Gemma. (laughs) 